Well, right now, a lot of students are taking the STAR test, and uh, right around the corner, others will soon be facing final exams. And tests are given for a number of reasons. Sometimes it's to see if someone's learned the material, to see uh, if it's been mastered, the material has been mastered. Other times, tests are given as James chapter 1 verse 3 says, the testing of your faith produces endurance. So it can be used to shape or reveal our character. As we've been going through this series in the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Joseph, we've seen that God has used all of these things in Joseph's life. We've seen how uh, he's been prepared and tested. He's been transformed to become the prime minister of Egypt. And when we left off last time, Joseph's brothers had come to Egypt. They had bowed before him as the prime minister. Now, as they bowed before their brother, remember, they didn't yet know this was Joseph. We saw how Joseph recognized them, but they didn't know who he was. And so as we pick up our story today in Genesis chapter 43, what we're going to find is the prime minister becomes a proctor, and he sets up a test. He wants to see if his brothers would abandon Simeon as they had done to him more than 20 years earlier. You'll recall last time Joseph had imprisoned their brother Simeon. He sent them home and he said, you cannot come back unless you bring your brother Benjamin with you. And so he's waiting to see if they would return or whether they would leave uh, Simeon as a slave in Egypt as they had done to Joseph more than 20 years before. Now, Jacob, you'll recall, the father, when they return home uh, and they tell him what has happened, we were accused of being spies. This man said, unless you bring Benjamin back, you won't see my face again. You won't get any grain. And And Jacob, the father, had said, look, I've already lost my favorite son, Joseph, and I'm not gonna lose Benjamin. And so they sat around, leaving Simeon in jail in Egypt, They sat around eating the grain. We don't know how long has passed before the provisions run out. It could have been even up to a year. But finally, the food has run out. Nothing is left. And this is where our story picks up in Genesis 43, as verses 1 through 5 tell us. Now, the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain, which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. Uh, But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. So Judah is sitting there. Finally, the father, as you'll remember, had buried his head in the sand, said, we're just going to ignore the situation. And now he says, hey, guys, go get some more food. And Judah says, listen, dad, the guy was serious. We've told you, he said, unless Benjamin is brought back, you won't even see my face. So we're not going to make the long trip to Egypt because it'll be worthless and we'll come back with nothing. Now, later in verse 10, Judah will say, you know, dad, if you hadn't had us delay the inevitable, we could have already been there and back two times. Now, Jacob has his back against the wall. He's forced with two uh, disturbing situations, either starve to death or send his youngest son, Benjamin, the one who is the new favored son and chance losing him. And so you see the frustration. You you can picture him screaming in verse 6. As Israel said, why did, you, why did you treat me so badly by telling that man whether you still had another brother? 
But they said, demand question particularly about us and our relatives, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Judas says, dad, we didn't do this on purpose. Look, we don't know how this guy knew, but he knew. And he wanted to know about you, and he wanted to know about our other brother, Benjamin. Now, we know, don't we? We have the the benefit of reading the story. We know that the guy, the prime minister, is their brother. Of course he knows about the family situation. Now, Joseph has been separated for more than 22 years. He doesn't know. Is Jacob, later renamed Israel, still alive? Is dad dead or alive? And what about Benjamin? You'll recall that he wanted to know, what have you guys done to my younger brother? And so this is why he's asking, but while we can see these things on the surface, there's something even deeper going on here that maybe you haven't seen. Because as we're looking at the background to the story here, uh, I want to remind you of the very first sermon in this series. In the first sermon in this series, we talked about the line, the promised line that God said, this is my group of chosen people who will become a nation. It began with Abram, Abraham, later being renamed. We walked through what happened with Hagar and and Sarah, and we saw that the promise, the line of promise came down to Isaac, not through Ishmael, which became the Arab nations. And then uh, we saw when Rebekah had two sons from Isaac, one was named Jacob, later renamed Israel after his all-night wrestling match with God, his new name, and then Esau was not the line of promise. And then what we talked about is where will, who will be the next one? And we saw from Jacob, he had the two wives, Rachel and Leah, and we've walked through that story. And then the concubines, Zilpah and Bilhah, and out of this came the 12 sons who would later become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob, you'll remember, thought that his son, the one he would choose, would be Joseph. This was the favorite son. This was the one he robed in a royal garment. This is the guy that Jacob said, well, the the promise line is going to go through Joseph. But then Joseph was removed from the picture. And what the Bible tells us is it wasn't Joseph that was chosen. Rather, it's Judah. Judah, the fourthborn of the, of the sons, would be the one that the line of promise would come through. Jesus Christ is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the, the promised line that is going on. And as we look at the story here, um, it's really not about Joseph. The story is really about this, the line of promise. I want you to notice in verse 6, and if you look at verse 8 and again at 11, that the name Israel suddenly shows back up. We've been talking about Jacob, 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 but suddenly the text tips us off that something is happening because it says Israel. Now, this is the the covenant name, you'll recall. This is the name that um, God gave to Jacob, and he said, you, Abraham, the initial promise was, I will make you a father of descendants that you can't even number. These will be the nations. At this point, this is the whole line of Israel. But it's, it's going to continue to be multiplied. Now, Reuben, as we saw back at the end of chapter 43 last time, the firstborn, the oldest, tried to rise up. He was the one who said, Dad, let me be the leader. You can take my two grandsons as collateral if you will send Benjamin. But the father rejected Reuben. 
Now, there's a lot of reasons. We talked earlier in this series about how he had slept with one of his father's concubines and he was set aside. You've got the other son, Simeon and Levi. They, they, they're a mess too. These are the guys that were part of the massacre at Shechem. And then we've got Judah. Now, Judah is, is no shining star himself. Uh, if you look at G- uh, Genesis chapter 38, we skipped over that chapter uh, because you, you may say there that, God, why did God drop this story in, this unrelated story about Judah who has this torrid affair where he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Uh, you had Tamar was, was the daughter who was married to one of Judah's sons. Now that son died off and there was something called the law of Leverite marriage. And the law of Leverite marriage said that if a brother died without a, an heir, a descendant, that the next brother was to marry the wife and raise up an heir. That son would then be put in place of the dead uh, descendant. Now, the second son came along, and as you read the story, as I said, it's a very torrid little situation. That son said, I'm not going to take all the pleasure, but I'm not going to have any responsibility. And so he made sure that he would not father a descendant. God judged him and killed this kid. So suddenly Judah goes, this is the black widow. I mean, two of my boys have died with Tamar. I'm not going to give my third son over. So he keeps telling her, oh, the boy's too young. Eventually I will give him to you. But she figures out Judah has no intention of giving me this son. And I need to raise up an heir in place of my dead husband. And so she puts on some clothing, pretends to be a prostitute. Judah comes along. Uh, She manages to get him to sleep with her. He doesn't know. She tricks him. Uh, Judah, she shows up pregnant, and he turns around and says, oh, here's the opportunity. We need to stone this woman. She's committed adultery. She was supposed to be betrothed to my younger son. And she shows up with his staff and seal and stuff and says, uh, oh, well, the man whose baby it is, it's these. Do, do Do you know who this would be? And Judah goes, she's more righteous than I am. And it says he puts her away, he, he, he doesn't sleep with her ever again, and then there is a boy born from that. Now, as I said, it's just a torrid little story, but as you read it, guess what? Look at the chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 1, because in Matthew 1, 3, we see the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, and guess who shows up in it? Judah and Tamar. This is why God drops that story in chapter 38 that we read along and we go, why is this even here? Because this is really the whole purpose of the Joseph narrative. It's to talk about the line of promise and the son that would come and it would be through Judah. And as we're reading along here, all this interchange about Benjamin and whether he gets to go or not really isn't that important. What is important here is Judah rising to the top Judah becoming the leader among the brothers. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. And it would be through this line of promise that the real story comes. And so this is why we come back to Jacob needing to be called Israel. Jacob needs to remember who he is. That he is the son of promise. And he is the one that the line will come through. Now the problem is that Israel has forgotten this. Back when he was given his covenant name, as God moved Jacob and his family to the promised land, this is what Genesis 35.10 tells us. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Now again, remember, he's already gotten his name earlier, 
But this is where God recommissions him. He says, I'm putting you in the promised land and you need to recognize who you are. You are Israel. You are the promised line. And as Judah is, is, as Israel's in that role, right before the recommissioning in chapter 35, look at what 35.4 tells us. It says, as Jacob is preparing to go into the land, it says, so they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As Israel takes his role, his place, he says to his family, listen, We are to have no foreign gods before the true God Israel. We're going to take all these idols, all these amulets, all these foreign things, and we're going to bury them. We're getting rid of this because we have to have only one God. Now, as the story has gone along, as I said, Israel has forgotten who he is, and he's gone back to being Jacob, the schemer, the guy who's out for himself and and has his own plans. And what God is doing is stripping away the idols out of Jacob's life. He's, he's saying, you cannot be the schemer, but you have to be Israel, the one who holds on to, depends upon me alone, the one who recognizes your role. And the idols that Jacob has had in his life are two boys, one named Joseph and another named Benjamin. And God has had to strip these things away from him. In Genesis forty-two thirty-eight, Jacob said, my son shall not go down with you for his, his brother is dead. And he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol and sorrow, the grave, the place of death. You see, Jacob says, what was most important in my life, Rachel, she's gone. And the reminders of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph is gone. And all I have left is this boy, Benjamin. And I will not let him go. And he's holding on to this idol in his life. And when we get to verse 27, what we're going to see is that there's a conversation about the shalom. This Hebrew word shalom, you'll recall, means peace. Jacob just said, if I lose Benjamin, there will be no peace in my life. I will have nothing but grief and I will go to the grave in sorrow. But God says, listen, Jacob, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to cause grief in your life. I want you to have shalom, true and lasting peace. In verse 27, that word shalom is going to come up where Joseph says, what is the shalom, the welfare, the peace of your father like? That word is, is going to show up there because God is not out to hurt him. He wants him to trust and to depend upon him alone. I want you to think for a moment about your own lives this morning and whether or not you have an idol in your life. Now you may say, well, Roger, I don't have any pagan statues in my home or something like that. Well, let me ask you this. Is there something in your life that is first and foremost more important to you than anything else in your life, including God himself? If you were to fill in this blank, this question, I can't imagine living my life or my life having meaning without, what would you put in there? As you think about your life today, if, how would you answer this question? Is, is it a relationship? Jacob's relationship with his sons were were his idol with these two boys. What about you? Is it with a spouse or or one of your children? Is it a career or position that you're pursuing? Is, Is it you wanting to regain something that you lost in your life? Maybe your health. Maybe some point of great glory in your life. How would you answer this question this morning? What is the idol in your life? 
You see, an idol by definition is something that is first and foremost more important to us than God. And God has told us in his word, in the commandments, you shall have no other idols before me. And what is happening here with Jacob is he has something in the place of God. And if we love something in our life more than God, we have made that an idol. And so what God is doing here, as I said, is stripping away the idols so Jacob can become Israel again, can remember his place. And it requires that he lets Benjamin go, which finally happens in verses 8 through 9 because of what Judah says. Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. We as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. Now, this is different than Reuben. Reuben said, my kids, but Judah says, my life. I'm the guy. He says, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. Now, this is really interesting. If you remember that back in Genesis 37, 26, it was Judah who said to his brothers, hey, let's sell Joseph into slavery. Do you remember that? They had thrown him in a pit. They were going to kill him. And Judah comes up with the plan. He said, don't kill Joseph. Why should we have the blood of our brother on our hands? Let's, Let's make some money. Let's sell him into slavery. So the guy who before wanted to get rid of the favored brother now is saying, my life in place of the favored brother. You see the transformation that has been taking place? It's not just with Joseph along the way. It's with all the boys and especially in the life of Judah and as well as Jacob as God is trying to move him back to the role of being Israel. And as we see Judah saying, my life in place of his as a substitute, we see the foreshadowing of the one who would come from the line of Judah by the name of Jesus Christ. Because it was Jesus Christ who said, I will go to the cross. I will give my life in place of Rogers and in place of every one of you who are sinners. I will be the substitute. I will bear the penalty. I will take the place of you in order to save you. And this is a foreshadowing of the line of Judah, Jesus Christ, that would come. Now, unlike Judah, Jesus would actually lay down his life to fulfill the pledge. And as he does so, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And John uh, fifteen 13, we're told, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And this is the sacrifice that Judah says, I am willing to take. Before God brought this change in him, Judah had hated the favored son, Joseph, but now he says, I will give my life for your new favorite, Daddy. I will, I will take the place of Benjamin. If anything happens, I will bear his punishment, his penalty. You hold me accountable. Now, in the next verse, we see that Israel's being transformed as well, but the process isn't quite complete because as he finally says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this idol out of my hands... What he does in verse 11 is he kind of goes back to the old playbook. Remember, Jacob's name meant the schemer. And when he encountered his brother Esau, whom he had wronged many, many years before, stolen the birthright, do you remember what he did? He he sent presents ahead to try to kind of grease the wheels, make things a little easier. And here he kind of does the same thing. He says, okay, listen, boys, if you're going back to Egypt, take all the best gifts that we can send, all the stuff of the land. You take that to the prime minister. 
And, and then we're going to see that in verse 12, he says, and make sure you take back the money. Uh, so, you know, that money that came back the first time, take back double what you owe so you can pay what was taken the first time and for the new grain. Now, as all that's happening, I want you to look at verse 14 because this is where we see the transformation happening. Jacob, who's now being called Israel, says, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Oh, no, you were so close, right? I mean, here he's going along and he says, may God go before you. In fact, he adds the name El Shaddai. May God Almighty go before you. This is the first time in chapters that Jacob has even brought the Lord up that he's even mentioned God. And here he says, may God Almighty go before you. You know, as we look at these words, this mixed message is coming out. It it shows the choice that we all have. When we send our kids out the door, when we talk to somebody at work or at the base or somebody who's in our world, we we have a choice. Will, Will we speak words that point people to the Lord? Or will we speak words that say, woe is me. As you think about the words that come from your mouth, which ones are they? Do we default to everything is bad, woe is me, or do we say, you know, we know a God who is big enough, a God who is big enough to handle even the biggest problems. And when we tell our kids as they're facing some test or some bully or some situation, when we ourselves are facing those same things in our life, do we default to woe is me, where is God, why won't he help me, or do we say, you know, we know a God who can handle this. We know a God who handled sin and death. He conquered the grave. And so if he can do that, he can handle this little problem in my life that looks so big. Now in verse 15, we see the boys head out. Those words are ringing in their ears. May God Almighty go before you. May God grant to you compassion. And as they come before Joseph in verse 16, this is the first time in over 22 years that Joseph sees Benjamin. Remember when Joseph was sold into slavery, he went on this journey to find the brothers. He thought he was coming home. We don't know what his last words were to to Benjamin, who was the youngest, who may have been just a young lad at the time. And he hasn't seen this guy. He's now a grown man. And as Joseph is up on the throne and they come in for the first time, he, he lays eyes on Benjamin. The only one of the brothers who wasn't part of the scheme to, to throw him in the pit. And this, this is his full-blooded brother, the one who he shares both father and mother with. Just imagine the, the emotion at that moment. He's, he's seen the other guys, but this is the first time that he sees Benjamin. And so Joseph steps aside quickly. He says to his servant, look, I want you to take these guys to my house. And the, the steward's going... Excuse me, sir, did you just say you want this dirty, dusty band of nomads to go to your mansion? Yeah. I want you to take these guys and put them in my house. And I want you to make a feast. I've got some things I've got to wrap up here at the office. And at noon, I'm coming home. Just have everything ready. Now, last week, we talked about what happens when we have a guilty conscience. Do you remember how our mindset will just suck the joy out of everything? 
and how we believe that everything is against us. Even when good things happen, suddenly we, we say, What's, wh- when's the other shoe going to fall? When is something bad going to happen? And in verse 18, we see that happening again. These guys have just been ushered into the private home of the prime minister. I mean, they've been invited to come over and sit down and have a meal with the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And what's their response? It's not, wow, let's take some selfies. Let's post this on Facebook. Let's let everybody know where we are. No, they go, what's going to happen? This, this guy's out to get us. Do you know? I know what he's doing. He brought us here so he can steal our donkeys. That's what the text says. And you guys are laughing and we should. We go, that's ludicrous. Remember who Joseph is? This is the guy with the Lamborghini in the garage next to the Ferrari and the Porsche. He has royal chariots. He's the second most powerful guy in all of Egypt. And these guys say, he's trying to steal our our flea-bitten donkeys. That's what's going on. They're missing it because the guilt, the guilt is there. You know, Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. What a picture. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Which one are these guys? They're still carrying the guilt. And they say, God's out to get us. This guy's going to get us. We know something's going on. Last week, we talked about the freedom. The freedom and forgiveness that comes when we take the pain of the past, when we take the mistakes we've made, and we lay them at the foot of the cross, and we say, God, I'm giving you my burden. Will you remove this from me? And these guys need to do that. Now in verses 19 through 22, the brothers go to Joseph Stewart. Again, remember they're guilty. And so they're going, hey, we know what this is about. It's about the money that disappeared last time, right? And so they go to the guy and they say, look, sir, we, we don't know how it happened. And they're pulling out money and they're saying, look, we, we paid for the grain and it showed up in our sacks. And, you know, so here it is back. We want you to know we're honest men. We didn't do anything wrong. And look at how the steward responds in verse 23. Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. Simeon, who's been rotting in jail, wondering, are these guys going to come back? He suddenly shows up. As as the steward says, be at ease, he uses the Hebrew word shalom. Be at peace. This is the word that shows up again in verse 27, where he asks about the shalom, the welfare of their father. And and he uses the word shalom as well as he talks about their welfare. Four times, shalom, shalom shows up. Do you remember how significant this is when you compare it to Genesis 37.4? Because back in Genesis 37.4, you'll remember there was no peace in the family. It said the brothers there would not even say shalom to Joseph. Here's a family that has been broken by bitterness and hatred and jealousy, and they've been at war with each other. And what God is telling us is, I'm bringing shalom. I'm I'm pulling this fractured family back together. Again, there is so much bigger of a story going on than just what we're seeing with Joseph and the brothers. And as as Joseph uh, Stewart says to them, shalom, I want you to notice what he does. He witnesses to these guys about God. And you're going, what? A pagan is having to tell the people of Israel God's line about how God is a God of grace. 
We, we talked about Joseph and how when he was first promoted, how Pharaoh gave him the, the daughter of a pagan priest. And Joseph had no choice in who his wife would be. But then we saw how Joseph had a choice. Kind of as Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, and Joseph did that. Even being in this high position and, and married into the, the priestly family of pagan gods, he names his sons Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. God made me forget. God has doubly blessed me. And it's not just with his own uh, family that he's witnessing, but it's with those who are in his home and that are working with his, his servants are saying, hey, we have learned about the true God, Yahweh, Jehovah, this God of peace. And he says to the boys, hey, it's your God, your God who's, who's giving you these great gifts. Now, the brothers are told, look, Joseph's going to be here at noon. So they go, okay, we need to get everything ready. And they, they go put out the little presents that dad has sent, you know, the special foods from home. And if you've ever been overseas in an extended time, you know how great it is to, you know, get that hot sauce from Texas or, you know, some other little treat that you haven't had. And so this is, Joseph's going to get these, these things he hasn't had since he was 17 years old. They don't know it, that yet, but Joseph arrives and they all bow before him. Now, think about Joseph. He, he saw Benjamin from a distance. They came in. He's up on his throne. But now Joseph walks up to his youngest brother for the first time in over two decades. And he reaches out and he, he touches his brother, his face. And he looks at him and he says, blessings. He blesses his brother. He touches him for the first time in more than two decades. And it says Joseph is overcome by emotion and he has to run out of the room. He has to go gain composure. He's weeping. And, and then in verses 31 through 33, the story picks up. Then he washed his face. He came out. He controlled himself and he said, serve the meal. So they served him, him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. These guys are all sitting at this banquet table. They're all lined up, and there's Reuben all the way down to Benjamin. And they're all going, we're in perfect order. How, how is this? It says they're astonished. And the reason for that is one scholar has figured out that there are no less than 39,917,000 possible arrangements to seat 11 people. And they're in perfect order. And they go, what is going on? Now, as I read the description of them sitting in the room, it struck me. It says... Joseph, they're all in the room together. There's this, this big banquet, this big feast. And it says Joseph is by himself. The brothers are by themselves and the Egyptians are by themselves. And I thought, what a tragic and sad picture of so many of our lives at times, isn't it? We're all together and we're all alone. This is the most connected generation in history and it is the most isolated generation. You see so many times, you walk around and people are, they, they, they don't even talk to the people next to them. And I wonder how many who are sitting here this morning feel just like this picture. You're here in a room with all these brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet you may be feeling all alone this morning. 
You're sitting here among others, and yet you're all alone. And God doesn't want it to be that way. We don't want it to be that way here at Wayside Chapel. Part of our vision statement says Wayside Chapel is a community. And we talk about as the church grows larger, we have to grow smaller. We have to connect people in different ways. God doesn't want us trying to go through life alone. And he doesn't want us just showing up in an anonymous crowd and then walking out of here having had no real contact with anybody. There are so many opportunities we try to create connection points so that people here can be in community with one another. There's a great opportunity next Saturday for men and their daughters. We have a father-daughter uh, equestrian event. We're going to go out to a, a, a little horse ranch. We're going to have a barbecue. We're going to make s'mores. We're going to do things. And we do that for two reasons. One is to connect dads with their daughters. I have two girls of my own, and we're going to be there. My girls love it. They look forward to it. Daddy, are we going to get to go and pet horses and play and do things and be with you and be with our other friends? And, and it's for, for dads to connect with their girls and say, you are special to me, honey. And it's also an opportunity for men to connect with other men. As the girls are riding the horses around the, the ring, uh, guys are going to be standing there on the rail watching their girls. And it's an opportunity, men, for you just to talk to another guy, to start a conversation that may become a friendship and a relationship. And so, men, if you haven't signed up for that, I encourage you, this is the last week to do it. There's going to be a table out there you can sign up. You can do it online. It's not just one-time events like these daddy-daughter roundups that we're doing. It's why we have adult Bible fellowships, these Sunday school classes for adults. It's so that instead of sitting in a room where there's, you know, hundreds if not a thousand people around you, you can connect in smaller groups with people. And they can know about what's going on in your life and when you're, you have a need or something and just a, a friend, it's a, it's a smaller opportunity to talk. It's why we have life groups where people will be in homes. Tonight I'm going to be with uh, the life group that I'm in. And this is a group of six or seven families that, you know, we're, we're doing life together and our kids know each other and we know them. And it's an opportunity where I don't walk in as Pastor Roger. I, I, I'm just a guy in there with my family talking to other families. And so these are connection points. It's why we have 55-plus luncheons where once a month uh, those who are in that demographic can sit down, have a, have a nice meal, fellowship time, and, and hear information on some topic that is related to that, that time of your life. It's why we have the new and newly married ABFs for uh, young marrieds or, or about to be married, young couples who are going through a certain stage of life and they're saying, how does life work? And why there's mentor couples in there to kind of help them navigate those early years of marriage when things are so tough. We don't want you to be here and all alone. This is not the picture God has where we're all seated together and yet we're all alone. So please find ways to connect to be a part of the community so that you're able to do life on life with others. Now, as we read the scene here, it's, it's the first time in over 20 years that all 12 brothers are in the same place, but only one of them knows it. And, and Joseph is about to find out if things have really changed because look at what happens in verse 34. He took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Now, remember, they already know, Joseph doesn't know that Benjamin has become daddy's favorite, but he remembers the thing that made them hate him is when favoritism was shown to Joseph. So he says, I'm going to find out if these guys are really any different. So there's this great feast happening, and suddenly food comes down from the prime minister's table 
and is put in front of Joseph. Five times as much. These guys are all feasting. They're looking. He's got more prime rib than me. The prime minister is putting prime rib on his plate. He's, he's just loading the guy down. And Benjamin's eyes are, I, I can't eat everything. No, 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 here's more. And these guys are looking over and they start, you see what's going on with Benjamin? But no jealousy surfaces. Now, Joseph uh, thinks, you know, okay, well, Maybe they're on their best behavior. You know, ask yourself for a moment, how do you respond when somebody is blessed more than you are? Do you get jealous? What happens when somebody gets a great job that you didn't get? They get a significant other or get married. Maybe you hear that their kid got a scholarship when yours didn't or or they post some award on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or something, how do you respond? In those times, do we become envious and less content with what we have? You see, as as the brothers uh, are watching this, Joseph is watching, are they jealous? Now, you may be sitting here thinking, well, Roger, you know, the reason they're not jealous is their own plates are loaded down. I mean, they can't even eat what they have. So why why are they going to get mad that somebody else has more than them when they already have more than they need? You know, there's food for thought in that, isn't there? No pun intended. As you think about your own life and how much you have, do you sometimes get jealous of what others have, forgetting how you already have more on your plate than you need? I saw this on uh, social media this week. Tell me again how hard your life is. As you think about your life, does it compare with this, this woman and her child over in Africa? You know, we have so much. As, as American Christians, our plate is already full. It's already overflowing with all the things that we have. And so often we look around at what others have and, and we get angry, we get jealous. Now, they don't respond here. So the next verse says, they drank and were merry with him. That's code for Joseph gets them drunk. The same words are used in Jeremiah where it speaks of of people getting drunk at a feast. And so what Joseph says is, I'm going to keep plying them with wine. I'm going to loosen them up. And, you know, when people get a little too much to drink, more comes out that maybe they're they're hiding. And, And yet still nothing comes out. So I said last week that when something is shaken or you squeeze it, what's on the inside comes out. And so Joseph is going to continue to push this test forward. He's going to, he's going to squeeze them even more to say, you know, if enough pressure is applied, what is on inside will really come out. So the next morning comes, they feasted, uh, they go to bed. The day dawns, the donkeys are loaded by the Egyptians, overflowing again with grain and provisions. Joseph again has slipped their money in their sack. I mean, wouldn't you have gone and kind of opened it to see, did that happen again? But these guys don't. They head out. And, and as, they're, as they're going out, uh, now, not only did Joseph put money in their bags, but it says that he took his silver goblet and he put it in, J- in Benjamin's bag as well. Now, as they head out and they're headed home, they probably have a pounding headache from being drunk the night before, but they're still feeling pretty happy. I mean, their donkeys are loaded with grain, and for the first time in their lives, they're going home with more brothers than they left with. Remember, every time, these guys keep losing brothers. Well, now they're going, we've got Simeon, we've got Benjamin, we're all here. And they're having a good time, they're headed back home, and all of a sudden they see the dreaded uh, flashing lights of a police car in the rearview mirror, right? 
And Joseph's soldiers pull them over to the shoulder. And they come up and they say, hey, who stole the cup? <laughs> you got the wrong guy, officer. I mean, it's not, it was the other guy speeding. He, you missed him. It's not me. And they go, no, no, no. Which one of you stole the cup? And, and they said uh, in Genesis 44, 8, look, we're not thieves. Go ahead, search our sacks. We're the guys who brought the money back. We're honest. And so the search starts. And to build the drama, they start with Reuben, the oldest. And they're going down the line, and the brothers are all smug. We don't have the cup. And all of a sudden, they open Benjamin's bag, and they pull it out. And they go, Who's, <laughs> whose is this? And it says they tore their clothes. That is a sign of deep, deep mourning. They ripped their clothes. And they go, what happened? And the steward says, look, you guys are all free to go. Head on home. We're just taking Benjamin back. But it says all the brothers followed Benjamin back. Now imagine how Joseph must have rejoiced when he saw all the brothers had returned. Joseph is thinking, could they have really changed? He, he wants to find out, so he, he continues to squeeze them in verse 17. He says, listen, you're all free to go, but Benjamin will stay here as my slave. Now, here is a golden opportunity, friends. They can get rid of the new favored brother. Remember, Jacob's been favoring Benjamin. Joseph favored him. If there's jealousy and they, they say, go back and say, Dad, look, it's not our fault. He stole the guy's cup. He kept them. We, we couldn't do anything about it. They have the opportunity to be free and free of the new hated favorite brother. But they don't leave. Instead, Judah says to Joseph in verses 18 through 34, he says, listen, look, I, I know I have no right to talk to you, but can I, can I please just tell you the story? And so he walks through the whole story about Jacob and how this is the the favored guy and if he doesn't come back, the dad is going to die. And he's laying out the whole thing and he says, listen, in verse 33, let me stay instead taking his place. Let me be the guy to pay the penalty he owes. I will be your slave. just, Just let Benjamin go back. Again, we see the foreshadowing of what the Lion of Judah would do for us where Jesus Christ says, listen, daddy, father, most holy and righteous God, Roger's a sinner. Everyone here is a sinner. Every one of us owes a penalty of death. We deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. And what Jesus does, the scripture tells us, is he steps into our place and he says, let me be the substitute. Let me take the place of the one who is guilty. Let my death on the cross be the death to pay the penalty. The scriptures say the wages of sin is death, and Jesus says, I will take your place. In the story happening here, we're given a glimpse of what God's promised line would ultimately produce as Jesus goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And as Judah tells Joseph, I will take Benjamin's place, chapter 45 says Joseph could not contain himself anymore. The dam breaks. He begins weeping uncontrollably. He tells the Egyptians, get out. They're all running out of the room. What's going on? And and Joseph says to his brothers, I am Joseph. I am your brother. Now we're going to pick up the story next time and talk in depth 
about the great reunion that we see here. But as we end today, I have a question for you. Have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because, friends, all of us here, as I said, are sinners. The scripture is very clear in that. It says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us here is a sinner. Every one of us owes a penalty of death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we are here today saying, you know, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be the guy or the girl to, to stand before God and say, God, I've been good enough to get into heaven. What the Bible says is every one of us will fail that final exam. The Bible says that as sinners, we are all uh, those who owe the penalty of death. And the book of Revelation says in the great white throne judgment, when we stand before him, those whose names are not written in the book of life, those who have not received Jesus as their savior will have to pay the penalty of the second death themselves. And they will be sent to a place called the lake of fire, what we call hell, separated from God for all eternity. And what God instead says to us today is this, I invite you, a dirty, dusty band of nomads, a group of people who have no right to even be in my house to sit down at the banquet table with me. And you can be at the banquet table, not just as invited guests, but as sons and daughters of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, if you will turn to Jesus to be the one who paid the penalty for you. He went to the cross to pay the penalty of death we all owed. And he says, if you will turn from your sin and to me to be your savior, then you will be made a part of the family. And friends, there is no greater reconciliation that will take place than that. And so as we end today, I want to give you an opportunity to give your life to God. If you're somebody here today who says, Roger, I've been trying to do it on my own. The Bible says, again, you will fail that final exam. And instead of depending upon yourself, he says, just turn to God. Turn from your sin into Jesus as your Savior and say, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize I've made mistakes. I've done wrong things. And I owe a penalty of death. But Jesus, I believe you died for me. You took my place. And today, I'm letting you, the Lion of Judah, be my substitute, the one who will take my place and pay that penalty of death I owe. If you'd like to do that, I invite you just to bow your heads with me and to pray this prayer. It's a simple prayer. It's just your way of saying to God, God, I'm accepting your son as my substitute, the one who took my place. If you'd like to pray that, then just pray these words. You can do it quietly in your own mind and heart. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes in my life. And because of that, I realize I owe a penalty, a penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, that you came and took my place. Jesus, you took my place as you died on the cross to pay that penalty of death that I owed. And today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sins and to you to be my savior. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for making me a part of your family, for washing away my sin, my guilt, and the penalty with your blood. Thank you, God, for making me a part of your family today. In the name of my precious savior, Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. <laughs> Friends, if you prayed that prayer, I'm gonna be at the front. There will be prayer leaders at the front. We'd like to know that you took that first step so that we can begin to help you take the next steps to grow in your walk with the Lord. 
For the rest of us who are here who have already taken that step of faith in the past, may we be those who will go into the world and share the good news of God's great message of grace for us. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.